So, Brian, tell me, venom is very, very strange expertise. So why did you choose it? <laughs> um, well, as anybody who knows me would probably guess, I was not a normal child. <laughs> I don't think any scientist is. <laughs> it's true. And um, the scientists who I think, you know, do the best and what I certainly tell students when they ask me about, you know, what should they study in science? I always say that they should study something that they're fascinated in because, you know, then that fascination, that passion becomes a fuel to get you through the incredible drudgery and the manic depressive existence that is, you know, being a scientist, you know, the emotional roller coaster of I'm a golden god to whoops, I forgot to carry a digit and it's all wrong. <laughs> and that's before all before 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. Um, uncertain career path, the drip feeding nature of funding. So, you know, it's it's tough. You know, it's the most rewarding career, but it's one that, you know, you need to be doing something you love. And ever since I was a little kid, I've just had a fascination for venomous animals. Venomous snakes are my first true love. Um, and then it just expanded from all sorts of venomous animals there. Um, probably a twofold reason. One of uh, my very first memory is actually being in the hospital, uh, being absolutely ravaged by spinal meningitis. And um, I had the nasty bacterial form, not that there's any good form of spinal meningitis, but this is the one that still strikes cold fear into doctors and parents. Like there was a case um, a few years ago of like 16 kids got it at a summer camp and eight of them died. And of the survivors, you know, there's a very strong incidence of um, permanent damage. And in my case, I'm completely deaf in my right ear. It's basically useful for hanging glasses off and not much else. That's why like, you know, I've got the one iPod <laughs> in and the other one has literally never left its case. And, you know, there it shall remain forever. Um, and I've also got really dodgy balance as a result of that inner ear damage. So my very first memory is, you know, this magical, mysterious force of toxins, you know, and how something like that can just change the trajectory of your life. And then my mom was a um, daughter of Norwegian diplomats who, you know, she grew up all bouncing all over the globe. I remember looking at her photo albums, like when they lived in Africa and they had cobras in their garden. They had a gaboon viper in their tennis court one time. They actually had a black mamba come into the house. They had a couple of giant pythons come into the house. And I was just, you know, absolutely fascinated. And my dad was in the American army. So we grew up bouncing all over the globe ourselves from military base to military base where we would go back to Europe for the summers and then come to another house on another military base somewhere else for the school year which my brother hated, but I love. But of course, you know, as anyone who knows me knows, I thrive on chaos. So um, with all of, you know, those kind of formative experiences, you know, being exposed to all these animals around the world and not just, you know, liking venoms from the cells, but having a real predilection and, you know, passion for science as a broader concept that I was for when I grandly announced that I was going to study venomous snakes for a living. And I'm one of those lucky people who's managed to turn that into a career, you know, through, you know, as uncertain of a, and unlikely of a career path as that may be. <laughs> and so living through all of this and then ending up in your childhood dream, is that what brought you to Australia? I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in 97, I came over to UQ with a um, PhD, armed with a PhD scholarship and a one-way ticket. 
Um, I'm now an Australian citizen. I consider my kangaroo passport as my most valued <laughs> asset, particularly with all the things going on in the U.S. I have mates going, how did you get to Australia? How could I do it? It's, like, uh, sorry, it's just dude, a bit of venom, guys. Now. Yeah. You just you know, got to like um, a bit of venom and you're suddenly Australian. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, Australia really is the lucky country in that it's the only continent on earth that has more venomous snakes than non-venomous. Oi, oi, oi. So I did my PhD here, um, the UQ, and then bounced around, you know, the usual postdoc gypsy trail that you go through afterwards. Um, so 10 years um, down to Melbourne, up to Singapore, back down to Melbourne, and then happiness was eventually Melbourne in the rearview mirror, uh, back up to UQ in 2011. So your current research that has um, just come off embargo, that has a very interesting story about some of our ape ancestors. So there's a little bit of a twofold aspect in terms of the animals that are involved. So tell me about what you found. So there's um, been a lot of primatology work on the co-evolution and selection pressures between venomous snakes and primate evolution, where there is a theory called the snake detection theory, where early primates, particularly very small ones, were prey for the large pythons in Africa. Um, and so that stimulated the evolution of very strong um, and excellent eyesight. Um, then correlation, there was a paper that came out last year on... Um, how the rise of different primate lineages, particularly within the hominae and humans in particular, have stimulated the evolution of defensive spitting and cobras. So in the paper that we looked at, we looked at the flip side of it of, you know, just as humans and other primates have influenced cobra evolution, have cobras influenced primate evolution? Because the cobras are biting defensively. They're not in interacting with the primates as um, prey, but Primates will attack snakes, as well as, of course, you know, the, just accidental encounters while foraging um, would re result in a defensive bite. And so we showed that as a general trait, the African and Asian primates are reasonably resistant to cobra elapid-style snake neurotoxins, but that the primates in Madagascar, which is absent of any dangerously venomous snakes, or the primates in central in South America, where the only cobra-style snakes with neurotoxins that are similar are nocturnal, burrowing, and um, rather small, as opposed to the large, daytime-active terrestrial cobras in a Africa and Asia. So Madagascar and, and American primates, exquisitely sensitive to uh, elapid snake neurotoxins, while the ones in Africa and Asia are you know, quite resistant relative to like prey animals like you know, frogs and birds. But then, quite surprisingly, in the last common ancestor of chimps, gorillas, and humans, which is you know an animal that is morphologically very distinct, you know, bipedal, uh, very different terrestrial foraging behavior, very you know inquisitive, but also moving objects like lifting stones and um, branches. So the likelihood of conflict with cobras is much greater. That that last common ancestor is actually markedly more resistant than any of the other primates. And it makes you know perfect sense, but it's still giving primatologist aneurysms currently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how I feel knowing that um, our evolution is so 
deeply tied to venomous snakes. But <laughs> from a molecular point of view, then, how would that coevolution manifest? So what we did was we um, developed a technique last year that you actually covered of um, looking of ways to look at the evolution of resistance using artificial nerves. And this really cool machine called an Octet HTX that we have in our lab, the only one in the entire Southern Hemisphere and one of, of only a few in the world. And with this machine, we can do studies that would be legally impossible or ethically you know, never going to get approval for, you know, where we can we were making very able to make any primate neurological receptor that we wanted of this particular receptor, which is the alpha one nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. We could not only not only make all the versions that we wanted, so we made the version from gibbons through to mandrels to chimps to lemurs to capuchin monkeys, all of their native versions. But then we also made hybrid versions where, all right, well, this one's resistant, this one isn't. All right, let's swap some. They differ in these four positions, these four amino acids. Let's swap them and see which one confers resistance or sensitivity. And then that allowed us to work out the structure-function relationships and show that in the last common ancestor of the chimpate human clade, that there is a, it, all, it came down to two amino acids you know, that are um, position 187 and position 189. Just those two were responsible for that radical increase in resistance. So it shows the exquisite you know, subtlety of this interaction between the toxin and the, um, the target. So it was a lot of fun, but it was, you know, it's a great example that you know, with these kind of innovations that not only were they more ethical, you know, the approaches that we were doing, but they're actually more efficient because you know, it would be a logistical nightmare to use even other animal-free techniques, well, you know, like the oocyte one isn't completely animal-free because you're still harvesting eggs from um, clawed frogs. But even with that one, our expressing receptors on that is a nightmare scenario, even with the native receptors of expressing them on those eggs. But let alone, you know, the mutants might crash and burn. So at the end of the day, our approach was more ethical and allowed us to do things that would just be impossible to do from a technical perspective any other way. Yeah, of course. It's a little bit hard to get um, an extinct primate to come down to the lab for a little bit of testing. <laughs> or even but. an extant primate. You know, you know, even if I had you know, unlimited funding and a small tropical island off located <laughs> offshore of a country with no extradition laws, there would still be the technical aspect that would be <laughs> insurmountable. <laughs> still be a few problems. So with a change in just two amino acids, that's that's really tiny from a genetic perspective, but it's really, I, I think it really shows the complexity of venom and its interaction with a, an animal body as well. So tell me a little bit more about how a venom, how venom affects primates, especially one that's a neurotoxin. So how these type of neurotoxins work is that they're in effect blocking the ability of your body to communicate from the nerve to the muscle, to tell the muscle to contract, to do something like run away or something equally vital like breathe. So the toxin by itself does nothing. You wouldn't even know it's there until you need to use that particular muscle. And it only blocks your, vol your voluntary muscles, your skeletal muscles. So your diaphragm that we use to move our lungs or our muscles that we use to you know, move our limbs, your heart still keeps beating. It doesn't affect that. But 
your heart will eventually stop once you run out of oxygen because your lungs are no longer moving. So with this, these toxins, they have to be able to bind to that receptor, and they do that through a series of very complex interactions involving you know, electrostatic and hydrophobic-hydrophilic interactions. So it's a very exquisite kind of lock and key arrangement. And with these mutations in the last common ancestor of the chimps, gorillas, and humans, there's enough of a shape change of the receptor to be made that the, um, the toxin can't bind anymore, and therefore your normal acetylcholine can get through. But you can only modify these so much before you start having a fitness disadvantage. It's a classic problem with any kind of resistance. It's like the, um, the animals that are resistant to cane toad toxins, like the crocodilians of South America, their um, ATPase pumps don't work as well as the crocodilians in Australia that aren't resistant because they haven't evo- had to evolve resistance. But the caimans in South America are munching on lots of cane toads. So therefore, that fitness disadvantage is outweighed by the fact that they've got they can munch on this available food source but like with some work that we did on resistance to snake venom neurotoxins in um, different animals we showed that um, the vipers in africa that are resistant to cobra venoms when they radiated out of africa and into um, northern europe where you know and, and this is very long ago like 50 million years ago that they lost the resistance because they're no longer cobras, you know, style snakes trying to eat them. And that fits with there being a fitness disadvantage to being resistant. You know, and in their case, it was a type of resistance that conferred absolute resistance, but it came with a very heavy tax. Uh, with the, um, so there's a selection pressure to evolve to whatever level of resistance you need to be able to survive. So in the case of like with the you know, last common ancestor of chimps, gorillas, and humans, you know, these are much larger animals than a small viper that's being fed on by cobras. So already the venom is less toxic to them proportionally because there's the same amount of venom but injected into a much larger mass. So therefore, evolving partial resistance was enough to confer the evolutionary you know, advantage, but not so much that the disadvantage was outweighing the advantage. So it's a very fine line between the two. And so that part of it was also very interesting to compare the level of resistance relative to what we've seen in things like, you know, the mongoose, which is, you know, attacking and eating cobras or the honey badger, which, you know, as everyone's seen the hilarious video, honey badger don't care, you know, well, you know, where they, you know, are resistant, but very, very resistant, but they're also like in the case of a mongoose and a honey badger, they're encountering cobras much more frequently because they're preying on them and they're much smaller animals so they need greater resistance because you know they're being bit more often and they're smaller versus you know the relatively infrequent bites for the um, primates but it's still frequent enough to be a selection pressure to evolve some sort of resistance so what might the partial of partial resistance have looked like in terms of its protection so in this case, so it, you know the um, chimp, gorilla, human, last common ancestor, and still today, like you know, we, we are much less sensitive to cobra venom than other animals. So you know, it's um, I would say that you know, sort of proportionally, we're probably you know we about twenty percent as sensitive. You know, so it's quite a significant drop. 
you know, we you know, enough venom into us and you will die and people still do die from cobra bites. But, you know, that's also from other toxins that are in there besides just this dominant form of neurotoxin that, you know, we can live long enough for unfortunate other things to start happening. So I love the idea that um, we are 20% less resistant, but don't love the idea that there's a whole bunch of other toxins in there as well. <laughs> so, well we're, we're about 20% sensitive, you know, so we have about 80% resistance. Yeah, so we have a big drop in the, um, the sensitivity. And so was that left over from this ancestor or was that a new evolution along our path to humans? Um, this is, so we are um, in this particular site of the receptor we are identical to that that you have in gorillas and chimps. But if you also look at our last common ancestor with them from an evolutionary time scale, it's quite recent, you know, versus, you know, that, you know, with something like a um, viper that evolved resistance to cobras, you know, they did that like 30 million years ago. You know, so, you know, for us, it's a blink of an eye. So we haven't, you know, we haven't lost the resistance or, you know, um, but we're also, there's not, there doesn't appear to be either enough time or, you know, there's enough of a fitness disadvantage for it not to matter. You know, if, we, if our receptors are a little bit less efficient and we, because we no longer need this resistance because we're now, you know, evolutionarily uncoupled because of the intervention of, you know, modern medicine and antivenoms. Yeah, so thanks, ancestors, and thanks, modern medicine. <laughs> um, during your project, was there anything that happened that you found particularly surprising? I know that this particular result is a bit strange, but was there anything else? Well, it was um, it was one of those rare, wonderful cases where hypotheses actually survived lab work because usually, you know, hypotheses you know, don't last very long in a lab, you know. You know, that, you know, sort of, you know, like any rule for war, you know, it only lasts as long as the first encounter with the enemy. Well, you know, any, you know, hypothesis usually only lasts, you know, about as long as the first week in the lab. But um, in this case, it was a, you know, rare and wonderful occasion where things actually worked out. You know, that, and it made perfect evolutionary sense. You know, partic- you know the, the real money ones were um, the Madagascar and American primates, you know, that, because that was the key there that, if this hypothesis was valid, then they should be extremely sensitive to these kinds of venoms because there's no selection pressure. It versus if they were also resistance, and that meant that resistance was just a fluke of evolutionary drift, and it was just, you know, it didn't matter. You know, so if the animals that were in the areas without these kinds of snakes were equally resistant, then clearly that means that there was no evolutionary purifying selection pressure going on. But the fact that, you know, they were exquisitely sensitive um, was key. You know, even the American ones were extremely sensitive to the coral snakes. But yet again, that fits, you know, behaviorally where the primates are daytime active and those types of snakes are nighttime active, as well as being small and burrowing versus in Africa and Asia where the primates are daytime active and the um, cobras are also daytime active. So, they, you know, they will be encountering each other. How that's there's so much subtlety there, which is which is why evolution is so amazing yeah. to study, I suppose, especially when it comes to venoms. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I no problems at all. Thank you for having me. Not sure if I'm less scared, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. That was no really problem. great.